Welcome to the Human and Technology Podcast. This podcast is for anyone who develops, distributes or uses technology. For all those who always have the feeling that technology overwhelms or dominates them. For everyone who wants to know how to deal with technology in everyday life. For anyone who wants to understand what technology does to us and how we can get our lives back. This podcast is for those who want to make technology sexy. All the product developers, designers, UX, UI professionals, product managers, CTOs and CEOs. And it is for you. My name is Dr. Peter Reska. My friends call me Dr. Peter. I am your host and I am happy that you are here. This is uh, another interview episode of the Human Technology Podcast. I had the chance to interview Amanda Stockwell, president of Stockwell Strategy. She is very much involved into user research of any kind, HMI usability, user experience developments. And um, besides that, she was a wonderful interview partner, very talkative, and she gave us a lot of insights into her professional life, how she got there, where she uh, where she is today. And um, she will also talk about uh, what role in her professional life lollipops played. So stay tuned for that. And um, just a little remark before we start, we had some sound problems in the middle of the interview, but that's just a very short sequence. And I hope you will enjoy it anyway. Amanda, thanks um, that you joined me here in the Human Technology Podcast. Um, it was a big back and forth until we got this meeting today, but um, I'm super happy that you're <laughs> here. Um, I think I first saw you on some um, Skillshare um, uh, videos and um, yeah. found totally fascinating what you were doing. And um, so I thought, yeah, she could be one here for, for a podcast interview. And I'm very happy that um, you're joining me here today. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. All right, excellent. So let's just, just jump into the first question. Tell us a bit about yourself. What is your work in HMI, GUI, usability, user experience? What, what is your focus on work? Yeah, sure. So I've been in user research and strategy for almost 15 years. Um, I have a human factors and ergonomics background. I thought I wanted to be an engineer in college. Um, I, <laughs> I didn't really know that research was a viable career path. Um, and so I, I took, um, you know, kind of human factors classes because um, they were the most interesting to me. And really truthfully, I, I tell this story a lot, but I, I joke about it, but it's true. Um, I was at the engineering school, uh, like major fair and the human factors and ergonomics society had, um, lollipops at their table and I wanted some. <laughs> so I went over to go talk to them and I figured out that, oh, these are, they're engineers. They have technical skills, but they're talking to people and they are thinking about cognition and all of the stuff that was really interesting to me and that I had never kind of seen or known about before. So, um, I am one of the lucky few who actually studied something kind of related to, to UX um, in college and then 
I got sort of a UX generalist role uh, right out of school and uh, pretty quickly um, you know, thought I might want to do more design work, but pretty quickly at that role realized that what I really loved was the um, user experience piece of it. So, um, and the research piece of it. So I've been focused on research almost exclusively since then. Um, and, you know, really just kind of evolved. I've worked at, I started at a, a fairly small company. It was a startup when I was there. Um, I left and went to a fairly large corporation. Then I worked at an agency um, and now I've been freelancing. So I've worked in sort of every type of iteration that you could do. But the, the one thing that has remained constant is that I've been doing qualitative research, um, really trying to understand who users are, what their goals are, what their needs are, and then helping sort of marry that with the technical and, and product thinking side of things. Like, okay, who are they and what do we do with that information? How do we turn that into something that um, the, the business can use to kind of help them hit their goals? So yeah, I've, I've, I've been in it a long time and I've been, um, you know, kind of running my own um, consulting shop full-time since 2016. So cu- coming up on five years. All right. Okay. That's pretty much the same time when I started my, my own business. So I kicked it off in, in May, 2015. So that's almost six oh, years great. now. Yeah. Um, what brought you to the point where you are? You talked about the lollipops and um, I mean, <laughs> the, 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 the great thing about life is you have to live it forward, but you only understand it backwards, right? I mean, you, you identify these turning points when, when you look backwards and um the uh, but but you have to live it forward and you do not know what the turning points are if you run through them so maybe you can talk a bit about these um, turning points in your life what were the decisions that you made and what brought you to exactly the point where you are today sure absolutely so um I absolutely am a person who says yes, uh, sometimes to my detriment, but I am very much one to sort of explore and say yes to things and try things out. Um, And to your point, you don't always know when those are going to be a turning point, Um, but there's a couple of of, uh, sort of big pivots I made. So the first was I grew up in Maine, which um, is in the Northeast part of the United States. I grew up on an island, so um, not not exactly very urban. It was quite rural, um, kind of in the middle of nowhere. And then I went to school in Boston, which is also in the Northeast. And when I graduated, I applied to jobs literally all over the world because I didn't know where I wanted to go, except for that I wanted to leave New England. So I just wanted something different. Um, because I figured, you know, if you try something and you don't like it, you can always, you can always go back, but you can't undo not doing something. So um, I applied to a whole bunch of jobs. I got two offers. They both happened to be in the southeast of the United States. Um, and so I went to both both cities, uh, Raleigh-Durham area and Atlanta, and um, basically spent a weekend in each place and decided that I liked Raleigh better. Um, and so that was my first kind of turning point. I really literally just flew to both cities for the weekend, rented cars and drove around. And it felt more my speed in Raleigh. Um, in Durham actually is, is where I live. Um, so that was that first kind of turning point. I got that first job and, um, you know, kind of was, it was a really great experience. It was a pretty small startup when I started, uh, but it had a pretty established UX team and I got to learn a lot. But after a couple of years there, um, I was a little bit bored to be honest. And I thought that being, you know, 
23 and bored in my career was probably not a good thing. So I, again, kind of on a whim, started looking for jobs, um, started to apply kind of all over the place. I was planning to stay in Durham, but um, happened to get a job offer at a large company in Boston, um, or outside of Boston. I already knew the area. Um, and so not completely on a whim, but kind of on a whim in the course of about three weeks, I decided to, um, break my lease at my apartment and move up to Boston and, and start a new role. So, um, I think, so that was one is, and I think kind of, I'm driven very much by new experiences. Um, and so whenever I start to feel like something is stale or something isn't quite working for me, um, I look for a way to change my experience. So, um, you, you know, just kind of taking that job. And then um, after I lived in Boston for about a year, um, I really missed my friends and the life that I had built in Durham. So I, um, I actually tried to quit my job and my boss was like, hey, why don't you just work remotely for a little while? And I was like, oh, that's an option. Okay. Um, and so when I moved back to Durham, all of my friends who had worked at that startup with me previously, the startup had been, had been sold um, and most people had moved on. And so I sort of accidentally found myself consulting um, and freelancing because I was looking for another full-time job and none of my friends had budget quite to hire me full-time, but they were like, well, we can't hire you, hire you, but we could just have you do this project. How's that? Um, and so I sort of, accidentally ended up freelancing for several years um, and realized I really liked it. Um, and so along the way there, I ended up consulting for um, a, a recruiting agency and staffing agency and helping them um, kind of learn about UX and the different roles and how to screen for them. Um, and throughout that process, I also got to um, talk to a lot of large companies who are hiring UX people, and I got to help them sort of figure out their hiring strategy and what team building looks like. And um, I think a lot of, a lot of the sort of decision points in my life weren't so much decision points as sort of doors that were maybe left a little bit open that I just kind of peeked my head into to see what was in there. Um, <laughs> Cause I'm very curious. I, I think um, most people who are researchers are right. And I just kind of like opened the door to be like, Hmm, what's in there. Might I like that? Is that interesting to me? Um, and it was through um, my partnership with that recruiting company, I started helping them um, put together local events in various cities that they were trying to recruit in so that they could really get to know um, the UX community better in those areas. And um, while I was at one of those events, I happened to meet somebody who uh, worked at, at the time, it was lynda.com. Um, they've since been purchased by LinkedIn, but he said, hey, you know, we're looking for instructors on UX. Um, you know, do you have any interest in teaching classes? And I was like, hmm, well, I don't know. <laughs> let's let's see. Let's peek in that door. Um, and pitching to them and then um, teaching teaching a class for them. And, and so now where I've really found myself is um, in this place where I'm consulting full-time and I do research projects but I also do a lot of teaching and training and so I think what I, I really um, kind of done and pivoted well is I find the parts of something that I like or that are, are most interesting to me um, and then I 
kind of pivot around that. So when I realized that I liked training with LinkedIn, I liked doing the online classes, then I started doing in-person training and I started teaching teams how to do UX. And so I sort of find the nugget of something that I like um, and follow that down with whatever path I can find for it. Um, but I am always someone who is also kind of putting out feelers for other things that are interesting. So um, I wouldn't say so much that I have like actively sought out any of these things is that I have actively, um, actively invited and said yes to lots of opportunities and then figured out, um, figured out what I like. So I have, I haven't necessarily like made myself a plan and went there. I have just sort of like followed various things I was interested in or curious about and then found myself um, sort of sort of constantly iterating towards the type of work that I like to do more and more and figuring out what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Okay, excellent. You said you're a pretty curious uh, person and then you try to get into things. And I mean, if you're a researcher and I, I did a lot of that kind of research work for Mercedes, for example, and that was in the last millennium. So that was more than 20 years ago. And, but, uh, but I found interesting is meeting these people, talking to these people and, and getting to know them and their dreams and their ideas. And are there, I mean, I'm, I'm aware that you will probably not be able to talk about uh, particular clients that you have or any, any um, let's say, strange details um, you may know. But can you tell us a <laughs> couple of stories of your professional life that you find uh, interesting or funny or crazy or whatever? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So one of the things um, that I particularly love about my job, to your point, is that I get to just like dive into worlds that I would never otherwise be a part of. So one very good example is um, one of my clients a couple of years ago was a company who handled um, financial transactions for cruise ship lines for the employees of cruise ships. So I got to do ethnography on a handful of cruise ships. Um, And as I said, I grew up on an island. Um, My dad was a boat captain, so I'm familiar with the sea, but I was not familiar with the cruise world at all. Um, And I had never been on one as a passenger, but I got to go on a handful of cruises and I stayed in the, um, the crew cabins and ate at the crew mess. And um, it is wild. It was absolutely wild to me. There's like whole cities inside these ships um, Mm -hmm. and their own internal culture and their own internal um, structure and hierarchy of people. And um, yeah, it was, it was wild. That was a particularly fun one. Although I joke, you know, yes, I was on a cruise ship, but I think technically we went to Mexico, but it's not like I was up on the deck, you know, drinking a fruity drink. I was down in the depths of the cruise ship. Um, Another time I was working with a health insurance company in the Midwest of the United States. um, And I was doing ethnography there. And one particular couple that we met um, was telling us about the the orchard that they had. And they they gave us wine from their fruit orchard (laughs) during the interview, which was um, unexpected <laughs> to be sure, but they were very nice. It was interesting. But one of the things I really love about research is that although everybody's different and cultures are different and people have, you know, different things that they care about. Um, I also really find that as different as people are, people also 
are sort of fundamentally the same. People care about their families. People care about their loved ones. Um, people have big dreams. Um, and, you know, it just, it's really fascinating to me that I could be in the Midwest of the United States or talking to a business person in Europe or talking to a, you know, crew member on the bottom of a cruise ship. Um, and there's some really kind of similar consistent traits about what people care about and how they, they kind of look at things. And so, um, I don't know, I find that kind of heartening in a time when there's a lot of division and a lot of, um, struggle, at least in the United States, I think, um, it's happening everywhere, but it's particularly top of mind right now in the, in the States. And so I find it kind of heartening, actually. That's one of the things I really love about research is that, of course, everybody's different, but there's also some things that are um, fundamentally similar about people. And I, I love hearing um, people's stories about how they got to where they are and where they hope to go. Um, and I find it endlessly fascinating <laughs> to hear about different, different slices of life. So um you know, people joke that you like, if you were, if you do what you love, then it won't feel like work. Let me just be clear. It still feels like work. It's really hard. It's a lot of effort, but, um, it is endlessly fascinating to me. Mm. Yeah. I, I really love this. And I really love traveling a lot to, to see all these different cultures. And I mean, uh, if, if you hear from other people, what they think, what they believe and how they behave, then you learn how, Uh, you learn to reflect your own behavior and, and, and then you, you broaden your view on that one. I mean, things that you do every day and, and, and that belong to your culture are so natural that you do not even reflect on this one. And if you talk to people, if you travel, if you, if you have all these experiences, um, then, then you start questioning yourself and, and, and all the habits that you have and all the customs that you live. Absolutely. And I cannot wait until travel opens back up again. It is been a really hard year for me to not leave my house much <laughs> yes that's pretty much the same for me so yeah i would love to go back to the states or to china or wherever i have my clients um yeah but i'm sitting at my desk at home yeah yeah me too <laughs> <laughs> all right um let's get back to the research area i mean you are in the very early stages of an technology development so my idea is if i want to develop a new device whatever it is or maybe an app or website or some kind of consumer product whatever it is i give you a call and say hey amanda um Please uh, uh, do a couple of interviews for me. I want to learn about my potential clients, about my potential users. Um, is that right? And what kind of uh, tools do you, do you uh, apply when you do this? How do you approach a project like this one? Yeah, sure. So yes, that is definitely one thing that people come to me for. Um, I do sort of a wide variety of exploratory and foundational research. I also do evaluation. Um, and actually, as I mentioned, I do um, some training work and And I've started to do more sort of larger scale market research because it turns out that the tools and the methods are basically the same, um, just applied in different contexts. But if somebody has an idea for a brand new thing, um, I absolutely can help them with that. And there's a couple of things that I typically do. One is I try to do an audit of whatever information already exists. So despite how um, innovative an idea might be, there's almost always some set of information that you can use to pull from um, to help you, you know, 
make some assumptions. So if you are, say, thinking about a new way to provide healthcare, um, then you can gather information about what that experience is currently like, gather information about what people are hoping that it'll be like, or what is currently problems for them. And the, the one thing that I really always tell people is that assumptions already exist. Um, it's just a matter of whether or not you name them and share them. Um, so I always like to start there with kind of like, okay, how did you get to where you are? Because it's probably not that you were just walking your dog one day and had this light bulb moment. It probably came from some set of experience you had, right? Like you probably came up with this idea because you were struggling to do something and it was a way to solve it. So um, I first like to kind of gather whatever information there can be. And then, um, yeah, very much kind of try to uh, so there's there's kind of this um, famous quote um, that gets attributed to Henry Ford about if you asked people what they wanted, they would have asked for a faster horse, not a car, right? Which um, there's some debate as to whether he actually said that and how true it is. But I think the sentiment um, gets brought up a lot because it's true that um, most people don't think in terms of solutions. They think in terms of problems or mismatches between what they're trying to get done and what they have available to them. Um, and so I always like to try to remind people, like the first thing that you need to do, like with my clients, the first thing you need to do is understand the population of people that you want to help and then figure out what they they need and figure out what they need help solving, figure out what looks like success to them. And then it's your job to be creative about how you could um, solve those problems, right? And so um, you know, again, this is kind of a cliche, but it's true, like falling in love with the problem and what they're, what sort of the holes are, the opportunities, rather than falling in love with a particular solution. So that can look a little bit different. A lot of times it's, it is interviews or um, when it's safe to do so, ethnography, or I've been doing some digital ethnography. Um, so some diary studies or, um, you know, things where people are taking pictures of something in their home or what they're doing, um, to kind of try to better understand their context. But, um, it is as complicated and as simple as talking to people, understanding what they're really trying to get done, understanding what problems they're having with that. Um, and then doing some creative brainstorming about different ways that we could solve that and being, um, back to curiosity, being infinitely curious about the different ways that you could solve things and being um, humble, I think is the word, humble enough to sort of come up with lots of different ideas, take inspiration from lots of different places um, and be willing to be wrong about what that solution looks like or how it evolves over time. Um, because the other thing is that uh, if you have a, an idea for something brand new, and even if you do a whole bunch of um, qualitative research at the beginning, people's context changes. Um, I think that 2020 taught everyone all the time that it, it, you can't really plan <laughs> for the future that well. Um, and it's okay. You don't have to. But what you do have to do is keep getting in touch with who you want your users to be and keep understanding how their context is changing over time. Because um, I guarantee that if you did a big foundational research project in January of 2020 and then didn't do any more the whole rest of the year, um, 
that you're probably not working with the best data that you could. And you probably are a little bit off from what your users really need at the time. Mm, yeah, yeah. I, I really like the quote of, of Henry Ford with the faster horses. And for, for me, this basically means that, that we as the UX persons, um, we are the translators. I mean, uh, people cannot express anything else but faster horses because they don't know any technology beyond the horses. And uh, it's our job to say, okay, what is behind the idea of faster horses? This is arriving earlier, right? And yeah. then you say, okay, what can I do to make them arrive earlier and then lift it to a more generic level and then translate that into technology? Yeah, absolutely. And that, that really reminds me something too of, so one, again, really understanding what is their goal to your point. They don't actually want a faster horse either. They just want to spend less time in transit, right? Like they just want to get there faster. Um, and I think that sometimes people get um, on the technology side or in the UX side, people get sort of stuck on one way to solve things. Um, and a, a good example of that, frankly, is that like not everything has to be digitized. Um, not everything needs a website. Not everything needs a mobile app. Um, sometimes they do, but sometimes they don't. And one thing that I think people get in UX get stuck on is um, looking for complicated technology solutions when sometimes a spreadsheet would do. Um, and so looking for not only ways to solve those problems, but solve those problems in a way that um, the user base can actually use and will actually fit into their lives. Um, And so being, being cognizant, not just of what their goals are, but of what their context is, right? Like if I'm working out in the sun on a construction site, my needs are going to be really different than if I'm sitting at a desk with a full screen. Um, and those are, you know, obvious extremes, but there's all kinds of stuff that um, can impact what somebody's experience look like. It's not just about building building the newest thing or applying the fanciest technology. Sometimes it is. Mm. Um, and sometimes it's our job to, to suggest what that new technology should be. But sometimes it's also to take a step back and say, what would really work for this user group? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I mean, I call this the revenge of the analog. I mean, people want to get back <laughs> to old spreadsheets and, um, get rid of all the digital stuff. And uh, maybe you know this, but uh, I think 2019 was the first year when in the USA more vinyl records were sold than CDs since ages. I mean, people want to return to these old vinyl records. I mean, streaming is far ahead, but if it's about really products carrying music on them, uh, vinyl records are sold more, the analog ones, than the digital CDs. So um, I find that pretty fascinating. Yeah, that is fascinating. I did not know that actually, but I'm, I'm interested. So because of my um, curious nature, now what I want to know is how come, why, <laughs> like <laughs> what I know, I, um, yeah, I'm, I'm super curious. Do you have any data about why that is? Yeah, yeah, because people want to have the, what they think is the real thing. Another example is that uh, during the first lockdown in 2020, Fender guitars had a big peak in sales because people, when they had to stay at home, they bought guitars and amplifiers to make some noise. I mean, you can do this with a computer as well, but they choose to go for a real piece of wood, some real strings and a real speaker yeah. and a real amplifier to make some noise at home. I mean, that, that is exactly the thing what 
That's what I call the revenge of the analog. It comes back. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I am. I'm not musical at all. So I wish that I was in that camp, but Hmm. I am not for everyone's benefit. I will not be making any, uh, any other noises other than talking. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right. Let's move on. We are living in a world with ubiquitous technology. Ubiquitous technology. I mean, tech is everywhere where we are. You talk about this one, data connectivity, communication. What does this do with us as human? How, how does it change us? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's something that we're all still figuring out, right? Like we have never really lived before in this kind of way. And I am... Um, just at the cutoff of the age where I did not have a cell phone for a really long time. Um, And honestly, I feel kind of a mixture of, of envy and pity for the kids now who are totally connected all the time. Um, I think actually I, you know, in talking about the people getting analog, people getting offline, I actually think like, and you know, this is, just a hypothesis, but I think our brains probably aren't meant to be this connected all the time, Mm -hmm. um, at least not digitally. And I know that personally, I have found that I am much happier when um, I make time to make sure that I'm not connected all the time. One of the things, frankly, that I miss about traveling is that um, I could turn off my phone when I got on the plane and I might still listen to a podcast or something, but I might also just read or um, I sometimes would bring like a stack of cards on the plane and like write cards, mm-hmm. um, you know, to, to people. And I, th- I think that it's really easy to get really sucked into being connected all the time, um, especially during pandemic lockdowns. Um, but I, I think that it's not great for people. And that sounds weird as someone who's in technology to be like, maybe spend less time with technology. But I think it's more about sort of like maximizing the experiences that you have, right? So making sure that whether that's leaving your phone at home and going for a walk around the neighborhood or purposely going on your phone to connect with a loved one or something like that, or to look at beautiful pictures of photography. Um, I don't, this isn't exactly answering your question, but I'm a big proponent of really being like intentional with your time. And I think one thing that's hard about technology is that it's really easy to be unintentional and to accidentally spend a whole lot of time not really tuned in to what you're doing with technology it's easier and there's you know there's kind of like jokes and memes about this like I turned on my big screen so I could sit on my couch with my little screen in front of me and zoom through my smaller screen (laughs) and not pay attention to any of them right and it's funny because it's kind of true but it's also I think um pulling at our attention so much. And I, I think that um, that ties back to, to UX in a way that a lot of people feel all this pressure to build something that catches people's attention, right? Like, um, and there's a lot of time at a lot of organizations that I have worked with, a lot of times when I first start working with them, one of their goals or KPIs might be like, have the users spend more time on our website or more time in our app. And I've had a lot of conversations where I'm like, actually, what you would like is for this to be as fast as possible for them to do so they can move on and go to something else. Uh, one that comes to mind, I'm working with a, uh, a company who um, helps organizations and corporations manage things like their um, burglar and fire alarms, right? 
No one wants to spend a lot of time on that. Hopefully you're not interacting with that that much at all. But when you do, you want it to be as fast as possible because you want to make sure um, that you are, you know, kind of getting the appropriate people in the appropriate places and that you check to make sure everything's fine. But that's the perfect example of where like increasing your interaction is actually not great. What you really want to do is do a good job of alerting them of when they need to and then make it as fast as possible for people. And so I, I think that there's sort of a ongoing tension for people who are in the design world and in the tech world to try to figure out like what's best for the user and what's best for the organization and kind of trying to tie those things together in a way that um, really, really serves people. And it's a hard balance, but it's worth, worth exploring. Yeah, I, I find the idea totally fascinating. I had never had that. I mean, many people see that uh, if people spend a lot of time on their websites, it's a good website, but probably it's exactly the opposite. I mean, if I want to go to an online shop, I want to leave as quickly as I can because I want to buy something and then I want to do something else. And I mean, having the, the uh, KPI off, they need to stay long. I mean, then I just design a very bad website, right? Yeah, yeah. Make it so they can't find anything and then they'll stay there a long time. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we have various uh, technologies in the pipeline. We as the society, the high-tech society we live in, like 5G data transfer, artificial intelligence, quantum computing. How do you see all this influencing our futures as, as humans, as analog humans, as, as Stone Age oh, hunters and collectors we still are? Yeah, well, okay, so I, I have a hopeful thought and I have a maybe more realistic thought. Um, my hopeful thought is that we can try to take all of this new power from our technology and be, again, kind of back to intention, be really intentional with it. So use things like 5G to speed up things that could, that are, are bothersome or new, you know, that are nuisances right now or take a long time. Um, or that if we could use artificial intelligence to, um, you know, help for things like, I know there was, um, I've read about, I think it was um, University of Georgia, but a college that was using AI um, to answer questions for, for, you know, common questions for incoming students and to automatically remind them of certain pieces of paperwork. Like, I hope that we can apply those things for good um, and apply them to problems that would really kind of better society. I do have a more realistic view that I, I think a lot of times what happens when there's a cool new technology, everybody wants to try to apply it to everything. I don't know if you remember the Juicero. Mm -hmm. Does that ring a bell? Uh, so it was a um, essentially a smart juicer, um, which you took a pouch of juice and you put it in the Juicero and you clicked some buttons and then it poured the juice into your cup. And it has been kind of a, you should look it up later. Um, it got quite, quite a lot of um, buzz for being like the exact kind of thing that we didn't need all that technology. Like, just give me a bottle of juice, <laughs> right? It doesn't need to be smart. It doesn't need to be connected. I don't need to talk to a juicer. Um, if you want juice, you could just press the fruit and vegetables and get the juice, right? Um, and so I, I think that there's a tendency um, to 
look for ways to apply cool technology for things that aren't really problems. And I think it goes back to that conversation we were having before of like, no one really had a problem that was solved by a juicero. Um, and I, I think that that happens a lot. People are like, oh, well, I figured out how to, you know, connect this AI and I could, you know, I could do this faster or whatever. But um, what I, what I'm hopeful for is that we use those new, really powerful computing things um, in the context of what people are actually having problems with, or in the context of ways that would really improve people's lives. Um, I do foresee though, that there's going to be more silly things that get built just because they sound cool or look cool. Um, or you can put some flashy marketing materials around them and yeah, you can be using AI and 5g to do something super fast, but who cares how fast and shiny something is if it doesn't solve a problem. Right. And, and the problem could just be, you know, like I'm bored or the problem could be something like that. So when I say problem, um, it's not like somebody has to have a really hard time with something, but there has to be some gap between where they are and where they want to be. And um, so I do foresee us having some things wedged into those gaps that maybe even wedge us further from where we want to be um, by being like, look how cool and shiny and pretty this is. Um, look, we replaced all of the people at the bank with AI. And I'm like, great, but I still need to talk to a person sometimes. <laughs> um, and I think uh, just something to be aware of that um, a lot of these technologies have built-in biases. Um, and I am a little bit worried that as we find ways to wedge these cool new technologies into things, we are also going to wedge biases into them. So um, I don't really have a good prediction, I guess, to go back to your question, but yeah. I'm, I'm hopeful that we can look for ways to um, use these, use these for good. Um, yeah. But I do have, I do foresee us going a little off the rails. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think that it is a view that uh, that is a view that we have in common. Um, I think technology needs a value. If if it doesn't have a value, it's just junk. It needs to make people's lives better in a way. It may be faster, safer, um, whatever, more organized. Uh, but uh, maybe just funnier. That that's also a point that that works out. I mean, technology can make things funnier. Um, Absolutely. But at the end of the day, it has to do something positive to people's lives, to humans' lives. And yeah, Amanda, I can't believe it, but we have uh, we are well above the 30 minutes now. <laughs> um, one thing at the very end, um, is there anything you want to tell to my listeners of uh, the Human Technology Podcast? Any learnings, any gift you can give to, to, to my audience? Oh, sure. Oh, goodness. Okay. So this isn't uh, so much a learning so much as a, a request to um, remain curious and remain humble and um, remember that um, your experience is almost never the same as somebody else's. And so although we very often have common threads, um, that really the best advice I can give to people is um, to continue to be curious and learn about the people that you're trying to solve for. Um, no matter how much experience you have, no matter how many times you've built a thing or what you've seen work before, um, let 2020 be a lesson that you need to keep learning about people and you need to keep understanding their changing contexts and um, use, use that for good. 
All right. Thanks a lot. And what I really love about these uh, Zoom calls that we have is that I can have a look into your office and I can see post ah, yeah. posters behind you. Uh, one yes, says, yes. Uh, wake, eat, UX, repeat. Something yes. that can the part. And the other one I can see is uh, do something new today. Yep. There's try, try, something try something new today. Yeah. Yeah. You, you exceed expectations here. I'll move around so you can see them. All right. Okay. Um, UX so hard, play hard. And love yourself, love UX. So those are posters from uh, the Talk UX event uh, in 2016. Mm -hmm. um, that I, uh, my my friend Jacqueline was was um, sort of organizing, and she was kind enough to let me take them after I spoke at the event. So yeah. thank you, Jacqueline. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I find them very inspiring. They could be here in my office as well because that's exactly what I believe, <laughs> what I live. Amanda. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, for spending your time with me, for giving us uh, your insight, uh, for letting my listeners, my audience know what you think, how you act and um, what ideas you have. I found it very inspiring. Thanks a lot again. And um, yeah, I, I, I really loved uh, the, the fast 30, 45 minutes we spent together. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me and hello to everyone. Um, Keep, keep in touch. I hope we get to talk again. Okay. Thanks a lot. <laughs>